Welcome to the IC Interviews. My name is Nalushi Karunaratna and I'm a writer here at Investors Chronicle. This week, my guests are Jeremy Grantham, co-founder and long-term investment strategist at asset management firm GMO, and Lucas White, portfolio manager for GMO's resources and climate change strategies. Jeremy began his investment career as an economist with Royal Dutch Shell, but he is now devoting his time and money to the fight against climate change. We spoke about whether companies and governments are taking enough action, what change he hopes to see from a Biden administration in the US, and how investors should see climate change as an opportunity for their portfolios. Lucas also explained how GMO approaches climate change investing, and gave us his thoughts on Tesla and other highly rated renewable stocks. Here's what they both had to say. Climate change is often painted as sort of a battle or a race. Do you think that this is a battle we can win? We seem to be generally moving in the right direction, but have we been too slow off the mark? Yes, of course we have been slow off the mark. Partly that was caused by the fossil fuel industry, whose propaganda has been uh, quite ingenious, well-funded, and has gone on for almost 30 years, for sure. And um, they've funded think tanks and institutes with deceptive names. And I, I figure that has cost us in America 10 years, maybe 15 years, which will be an enormous cost, uh, which no, no one will ever insist on them paying for, of course. But just like tobacco, where hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people died after the point they knew it was poisonous. Very, very similar. And so uh, we move very, very slowly. And we still have, we still have really the Republican Party um, waging a war against rapid climate change action which um, is pretty unique in the, in the world, culminating in us being the only country, the U.S., to get out of the Paris Agreement. Absolutely diabolical, unjustifiable, and uh, quite a remarkable testimonial to where we are in the U.S. and where the social contract is or what's left of it. To that point, picking up on the role of the U.S., obviously global action on climate change requires the U.S. to be a willing participant. With a new administration coming in in January, how hopeful are you that we will see more action and the U.S. will get serious on climate change? Big chunks of the uh, U.S. economy and and, uh, the entire social structure is already pretty heavily engaged with climate change. Individual states like California, Massachusetts have been working pretty hard anyway. And of course, all the damage and the dismantling of the regulations will stop instantly. Many of the regulations will be cleaned off and reinstituted and as they need to be. And so uh, at the very least, the damage that a powerful president can do will be reversed. That is great. Then it comes down to uh, Congress, and that comes down to how the two seats in the Senate go in Georgia. If, by some miracle, the the Green Party, the Democrats, win, um, then uh, a lot more will get done. If they don't win both seats, then it's going to be a real test of Biden's famous ability to uh, compromise and uh, and work with his opponents. And th- that may have some results, who knows, but then it will come down to how the midterms go. If the midterms move Republican, and they typically move against the party in power, it won't take much to make the House Republican, in which case uh, it will become nearly impossible to do major major moves, which would be very sad. However, spiritually, with John Kerry and getting back into Paris, uh, the U.S. can talk a good game. It may have trouble uh, acting a good game, but that will be a whole lot better than it is today. Even on the Democrat side, there's sort of a spectrum of, of action they're willing to take on climate change. Let's say that they win the two seats in Georgia. What would you like to see happen and what do you think realistically will happen? Well, I would like to see, from an economic point of view, a sustained 
public works program, uh, fiscal spending, uh, aimed towards green, but including the traditional um, bridges and roads and infrastructure, which is in terrible shape. This will be, I believe, not just very good for the economy, but actually necessary that the growth rate of the Western world, the developed world, has been slowly but surely unraveling for 50 years. Back in the 70s, 60s, we used to think of growth as being close to 4%, productivity at least being over three, and now it looks like productivity is closer to one, uh, perhaps for a few more years, one and a half in the US, but falling. And the second part of GDP is population, which is also falling everywhere in terms of the growth rate. And the baby cohorts now are shockingly each generation less than the one before. So we're, we're looking at a GDP growth, if we're lucky, at one to one and a half. And country by country, as the, as the workforce goes negative in growth rate, uh, that will be uh, increasingly difficult. So we need a jolt to the system. And I think a massive green-oriented public works program could, could get us out of this funk and have at least a decade or two of accelerated growth. So I think it's, it's critical from an economic point of view uh, that we do a, a, a massive public works program. And of course, you should make it green because the costs of not doing that have been grossly underestimated. You know, you can dig around in the economics world and find ludicrously little uh, deficit accounting. The famous um, Nordhaus, who uh, got the Nobel Prize for economics, infamously said that even if it went to six degrees centigrade, it would only knock 12% off the economy. And, and trust me, we would be fighting for our very existence, that civilized society as we know it would be disintegrated. And you could not find a climate scientist who would say that what I just said was wrong. They might um and ah, because that's what scientists do, but they would not say firmly, oh, that's an exaggeration, because they all believe that six degrees centigrade is basically the end of the game as we know it. It takes an economist uh, to work out the details so precisely that he can come to such a lunatic conclusion. And it, and it takes an idiotic Nobel Prize committee or, or pseudo-Nobel Prize for economists to give the guy a Nobel Prize for some of the most dangerous and, and wretched economic work ever done. Some would argue that uh, governments come and go and it's sort of this unfettered capitalism that's led us to this point. Do you think we can address climate change within this current economic system or is more radical change required? I do think that the current capitalist system is in pretty bad shape under the influence of... Uh, Milton Friedman, who uh, also infamously said that the social responsibility of a corporation was to maximize its profits, and that was the only responsibility it had. And that really took hold back in uh, Ronald Reagan's days and, and grew in significance. And, and today, we're just beginning to see, I hope, the pendulum beginning to swing back a bit and a few corporations waking up to realize the consequences of that. And, and, and the consequences were described by Joseph Schumpeter uh, back in the 40s and 50s, and that was that the tendency of capitalism is for corporate power to increase. And with, with increased power politically, they bend the laws and regulations to favor themselves so they become more powerful and more profitable, and then they bend the law even more. And that goes on until society rebels against it. And uh, in his day, he thought that that would be a socialist pushback because that was the period he was writing. But we are beginning to see that, uh, not just in the U.S., but in Europe and elsewhere, that people are beginning to say capitalism results in too self-centered uh, an attitude where companies act as if they have no responsibility to their country and, or in America to their state or their city. And, and I agree with them. And we have long passed the point uh, of optimal effectiveness, which, looking backwards, was probably the 1960s. 
a nice balance between corporate uh, influence and, and the workers. And since that date, almost all of the increased wealth has gone to the rich and the corporations. And the average hour worked uh, has received very little increased pay adjusted for inflation. People outside the U.S. don't realize what an extreme it is here. But uh, in France, the hourly wage in real terms has gone up since 1975 by something like 150%. And, and in poor Britain, which has not done that well, it's gone up about 60. And in the U.S., it's less than 10%. It really is remarkably flat. And all the, the decent productivity gains we had, which were comparable to France and the U.K., all flowed uh, upwards to the top 10%, the top 1%, and, of course, above all, to the top 0.1 and 0.01. We've seen some sort of progress this year in terms of companies making net zero commitments, governments making net zero commitments, institutional investors saying that they're going to put more pressure on companies. Do you think those actors are taking you know, the climate change problem seriously enough or are they just talking a good game? Some of them are fairly serious. Some of them are talking a good game. But one has to say the last six months has shown movement. The last two years has shown uh, quite a lot of movement in, in Europe and, and the US, that corporations are probably moving as fast as uh, anywhere here in the US. They had a lot of ground to move because they were the worst, but they have gone from terrible to uh, a mixed bag, some pretty good, some mediocre, but, but improved from terrible. So we are moving very fast. It's, it, it's really quite encouraging. Now the question is, can we keep it up? You know, we, we can, in terms of climate damage, um, we can only win in terms of reducing the time. There will be a lot of pain that comes out of climate change, a whole lot more than most people realize, particularly uh, in, in the corporate system. But we can head off damage much more profound than that. And, and we have to run as if our lives depend on it, uh, because they, in a very real sense they do, or the lives of our grandchildren. We really have to mobilize here, and uh, we may. And we also may be saved by uh, technology, which I don't want to depend on. But uh, e even in a world under-responding, uh, brilliant technology will make it so much easier uh, to survive the crisis. And our technology has really been pretty good. It's the one thing the U.S. is doing very well at a very powerful venture capital industry, but, but also willing to take risks, be innovative, and start up new enterprises. And, and the technological progress in, in everything green, solar, wind, storage, electric cars, and so on, has really moved along much faster than anyone expected. And we can prove it, because 10 years ago, they made estimates, 15 years ago, they made estimates of how much of an inroad uh, green electricity would make. And every year, the authorities have had to increase their, their estimate for 2030. And, it, and, and they don't seem to learn because every year uh, the level rises. And in the last two years, the jumps have been really quite profound. So it appears to be taking the authorities by surprise, this rapid progress that we're making technologically. Are there any particular technological developments that excite you? And also, do you think the progress is coming more from the private sector or are publicly listed companies also a big part of the story? The second part of the question, I think, is, is, is pretty obvious. And that is, it, it's the, the venture capital industry and the new companies that drive the system. Even if you look at the stock market today, you see the heavy lifting is done by the so-called banks. Well, the fangs all jumped out of the U.S. venture capital industry in the last few decades. At GMO, uh, we hired what would have been employee number 26 at Microsoft. And Microsoft and Apple are about the oldest two in the fangs. And the others are, you know, 20 years old, 30 years old. And, and we have a new generation of these high-powered, dense in intellectual capital companies are piling down the roadway much more than the rest of the world. And uh, it, is, it is the last, I like to say, the last of, of the great American exceptionalisms. It really is true 
the, the, the argument we hear in America of American exceptionalism is increasingly a rather bad joke. We are, in most of these areas, exceptionally bad. But in venture capital and its relationship with the great research universities, where the U.S. also has something of a death grip, and the U.K. has most of the remainder, uh, that, that gives you a huge advantage, and, and, and we have taken advantage of it. Let me just point out on, on the vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine, the heavy lifting is done by a German startup, which has yet had no drug approved. They did all of the intellectual work and then asked Big Brother for help in, in uh, manufacturing. The equivalent of Moderna, the guys who are one or two weeks behind Pfizer, uh, is a startup with that, which has also not received a single drug approval. So number one and two in the most important medical race, arguably of modern times, has gone to a couple of VC startups. I mean, how about that? Why, why hasn't the heavy lifting been done by Merck and Lilly and, and J&J and so on? And they have tried, but they're way behind. I mean, it's a wonderful illustration of, of the point, in my opinion. I, I, I do think, by the way, that um, the work on RNA, messenger RNA, is a breakthrough that will echo around the medical world and our general health forever. And, and w Grantham Foundation has, a, has an, an investment uh, in, in one that has learned to produce RNA for research. Uh, at 35 cents a gram, down from $1,000 a gram. Now, that's a wonderful example of disruption. And it's a perfect medium for working on vaccines. And they were already here, there, and everywhere working on uh, vaccines for flu when this hit. And that's why uh, they, uh, they got far ahead. But you can also use uh, RNA to deliver instructions to insects, for example, for a non-toxic insecticide that will affect only the specific um, beetles say that you're aiming at and they will be able to turn off it's really quite eerie when you think about it turn off a little part of the DNA so that the Colorado potato beetle can no longer digest potato. I mean this is cruel and unusual punishment and they all drop dead uh, within a couple of days and uh, so that, that's wonderful and then of course you have batteries uh, which everyone said were costing us the race uh, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, a Tesla wanted $1,000 a, uh, a kilowatt hour. And, um, and today it's 100. So in 10 years, it's down to 110. And, it, and below 100, it's cheaper to build an electric car than a gasoline car. And with the next generation, which I'm happy to say, we also have an investment in, the solid state is half the power, I'm sorry, half the weight, and half the volume, so it has twice the power-to-weight ratio. It does not catch fire, and it charges in less than 15 minutes. We, we aim for 10 or 12, which means you go into a gas station, you have a cup of coffee, and you go on your way just like filling up with petrol. Um, not bad. It will guarantee, with or without regulations, that the diesels and the gasoline vehicles are a thing of the past. However, the, the uh, regulations are wonderful because it, it will make people move even faster uh, than they would have done. Capitalism is not enough for these kind of issues. It's not enough to be left on its own. From an investment perspective, do you think that investors should see climate change as a risk, as you know, a threat to their portfolios or as an opportunity? Oh, absolutely, an opportunity. Um, this is where I get to brag that my solid-state lithium-ion company, QuantumScape, has, uh, which we invested in seven years ago when it was just a gleam in the eye, is, uh, has made me 16 times my money, uh, which is um, the biggest hit I think I've ever had in my life since this was the biggest investment we ever made. And we can use the money. <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of things in the green world we would love to do and can't and can't afford to fund. So um, I, I think um, it will take tens of trillions of dollars to green the entire industrial system and the energy system. And we will do it. Uh, it's just a question of speed. And along the way, um, 
it will change everything in terms of one's portfolio. One of, one of the underappreciated events of the last 10 years has been what has happened to the oil industry. 12 years ago, it was 16% of the S&P. Exxon was the biggest company in the world. Yesterday, oil was 2.5% of the S&P, down from 16. And Exxon was struggling to be in the top 50 companies. This is the biggest transfer of wealth in the history of the S&P going back to 1925, and by a lot. So even though there was no particular week where you could pick up the Chronicle or the FT and see that oil was doomed, nevertheless, in its often dopey way, the stock market has come to completely the right conclusion that this is an industry that has been told it is going out of business. And commodity industries are always fought out on the margin. So usually one or two percent disappointment rattles the cage enough to send the stocks crashing and the price of oil crashing. It doesn't take a lot. And this is a lot in the long run. So uh, this has been a massive. This is the biggest event, by the way, since the introduction of oil and coal and the steam engine, the greening of the entire system. And so all of the opportunities are out there. And people who fight it, like Exxon, are going to find it extremely painful. And other people who move quickly, like the uh, a couple of oil companies that have gotten into the wind industry, will do much less badly and, uh, and even might aspire to doing well. In terms of the... Uh polluters like Exxon who are still clinging on in terms of what investors can do do you favor engaging with those type of companies to pressure them to change or do you think divestment sends a bigger signal to them well the people who don't want to divest always use engagement as a kind of uh, ethical crutch and I look back to uh, to Harvard uh, University where the then uh, boss Dr. Faust uh, said that they wouldn't divest because they thought that engagement was better. And uh, I, I have been holding my breath ever since then, waiting for Harvard's battle plan to uh, engage with the oil industry. Uh, and it has been a very, very quiet wait. I have heard nothing or read nothing. So they went in for engagement, but did it so quietly um, that we never heard a, a peep. So basically, um, my, suspicion are, my suspicions are that they, they did not engage. So I, I think the point of divestment is not the direct economic effect. It's the signals that it sends. These are people who've cost us 10 or 15 years of progress, cost us trillions of dollars. They behaved unethically. I like to say as if they have no grandchildren. And do you want to aid and abet that? Or do you want to send a signal that we expect more from our capitalist system? And uh, I expect more, and I would have hoped that Harvard would have expected more. But none of the great universities in America are moved to take a leadership role. The other big signal you're sending is that by making them pariahs, as we did in tobacco, it may take 20 years, but in the end, it gives the courage to often weak-willed uh, politicians to move against them as they did against tobacco and charge them some of the tens of billions that they had been costing the health system. We, we need to empower politicians. We need, therefore, to make the oil industry somewhat the pariah it deserves to be. And the other thing that happens when you do that is they lose their share of the best and brightest students. These are very effective companies. They know in the long run, their edge, their advantage depends on the quality of people they get. They must get better people to be better companies. And if they start to lose a growing share of the best and the brightest on these ethical grounds, as they are doing these days, that, that gets them very upset, very excited, and perhaps encourages them to behave a little better. We notice already that Shell, BP, the European oil companies in general, have, have diverged from the American ones and be, 
begun to talk a more conciliatory, greener game uh, than the hardcore American ones. Um, my guess is that in the end, that will save them money. And that fighting a losing battle and planning to find more oil you will never pump is not a very effective way uh, to play the game. So the, the short answer to your question is divest publicly. To do it privately is ineffectual. Make it clear why you're divesting. And uh, let us continue down the road of making the oil companies uh, pariahs until they behave better. I was wondering, you, you mentioned sort of Shell and BP. What's your take on, on their plans? We've seen a company like Orsted made a very sort of dramatic transition from oil and gas to become the leader in offshore wind. It seems like BP and Shell right now are maybe perhaps doing the minimum possible that they could do. Do you think that they're doing enough or is it just a bit of lip service to make it seem like, oh, we're becoming green? None of us are doing enough. BP and Shell are not doing enough for sure. But it's also certain that they're doing a lot more than Exxon and Chevron, isn't it? So they could do less. So in a sense, let's be grateful for the fact that even lip service is a great improvement here. And uh, when they see how the Orsteds of the world thrive, uh, they will accelerate. My guess is they are having these kind of conversations into the early hours of the morning at the board level, and the top management level. This is the defining issue of their entire corporate lives. And they will take it very seriously. Which way they will jump is a harder call. But my guess is the European ones, including Shell and BP, will, will move steadily uh, uh, towards being more reasonable, greener, and, and so on, and more engaged in uh, green energy. One of the great pro uh, mistakes they made long ago was defining themselves as oil companies instead of energy companies. If I could pivot to um, what GMO focuses on in terms of its climate change investments, what type of companies do you invest in? Is it all about clean energy or the opportunities across other sectors as well? Well, we happen to have online <laughs> Lucas here, so I'm handing that one over. Yeah, so I run a climate change strategy at GMO, which is, is why I'm joining the call. Uh, and, and we look at all sorts of opportunities associated uh, with, with fighting climate change. So obviously that incorporates clean energy. So we'll look at wind, solar, geothermal, biofuels, clean power generation, things like that. But it's not just clean energy. We also look at the materials that underlie clean energy. Uh, and so you can look at copper, nickel, lithium, cobalt, vanadium. It's brilliant to want to move off of fossil fuels uh, and over to clean energy, but it doesn't relieve you of the burden of needing materials. There's no magical clean energy out there uh, right now. You, you just need a different set of materials. So rather than needing coal and oil and, and natural gas, uh, now you need uh, all the other materials that I was talking about for you know the electric vehicles, for your wind and solar farms, which use or projects which use you know, somewhere between four and six times as much copper uh, as the comparably sized coal or natural gas power plant. Uh, these are tremendously commodity intensive processes as well. Uh, you just need different commodities. So we look at those materials. We'll look at energy efficiency efforts uh, because it sounds really good to replace your car with an electric vehicle or replace your, uh, you know, coal plant with wind and solar. Uh, but if you can just use less energy, that has a huge impact on the world. If you can get the same unit of work done, but you're using 20, 30, 40% less energy, that's brilliant. So we look at energy efficient electrical components, appliances, building materials, mass transportation, electric vehicles themselves use less energy uh, than, than internal combustion engine vehicles because it's a more efficient process. Uh, anything like that would be within scope. Uh, and then, of course, there are technologies and materials. People are working on modernizing our electric grids. There are things that you have to do to enable uh, all of these technologies to have an impact on our lives. So, for example, the electric grid companies are, are a good example. You can only use a certain percentage of renewables in your generation mix uh, because wind and solar uh, don't always produce electricity. They have this intermittency problem uh, that you're dealing with. So we need much more sophisticated grids, more interconnected modern grids than what we've had. 
uh, and a lot of money uh, is going to trillions of dollars are going to flow into overhauling our grids. And we like to invest in companies that are going to benefit from from those investment efforts. Those are all kind of companies focused on helping the world to mitigate climate change. But we also look for companies uh, that are, are looking to help the world adapt to climate change. So ag and water, agriculture and water would be the two areas that are the biggest risks uh, for the world. So companies focused on providing fresh water, water efficiency efforts, recycling of water, purification treatment, desalination, all of those would be within scope. Uh, and agricultural productivities uh, expected to be tremendously negatively impacted by climate change. So companies focused on keeping agricultural productivity as high as possible, whether that's precision ag efforts, irrigation, uh, drought-resistant seeds, anything, kind of fertilizers, anything that would help keep our productivity as high as possible uh, would be within scope. Uh, so, and, and to answer, or kind of add my one cent, uh, I guess, uh, to, to a couple of, of the questions you asked earlier, we do see tremendous opportunities uh, for investors, even in the public equity markets. Our strategy is focused on the public equity market. Jeremy was talking about some of the exciting opportunities on the private side of things. But some of the more mature, proven technologies um, and business models that you can find in the public equity markets have done very well. In fact, done better than, than some of their private counterparts in some cases. Uh, and, and we've done very well generating strong returns in our strategy over the last four years or so uh, since we launched uh, and, and have significantly outperformed the broad equity market, even with some pretty significant headwinds in terms of we've been operating uh, the entire time with the Trump administration denying climate change. We've had energy and materials markets kind of really struggle the last couple of years. We're in small to mid cap companies, and that's been a, a tough place to be. We've been mostly outside the U.S., and despite uh, a fair number of headwinds and a fair amount of headwinds, uh, our strategy has actually put up uh, very, very strong returns. So uh, I think there are a lot of opportunities uh, for, for investors. Uh, that's pretty clear to me, and we, we've been really capitalizing on them uh, for, for more than a decade now. Uh, it's also a significant risk to your portfolio, and, and I run not just the climate change strategy, but I run a natural resources strategy. I'm involved in running a quality strategy. Uh, and in those broader kind of strategies or strategies that aren't solely focused on climate change, climate change is a major risk that we're dealing with, uh, whether it's physical risk or the risk that it's going to have on the, li the, the lifespan of your product, uh, in the case of the fossil fuel companies or companies that are big consumers of fossil fuels. You know, you don't have to be a producer to be at risk. The companies that, uh, you know, use a lot of electricity, use, you know, the steel making industry where you're, you're using a lot of coking coal, a lot of energy, uh, et cetera. There are risks certainly to all those industries as well. And so it's something we incorporate, not just for the opportunities, but also for the risk side of things in, in determining our positioning. You mentioned the materials that will uh, be needed to enable the energy transition some would argue that those commodities companies aren't necessarily friendly to the environment themselves. How do you kind of square that circle? I mean, it really comes down to what's, you know, the, the greater evil. It's not necessarily that um, we're flippant about the environmental impact that any commodity production is going to have. It's just you can either let the you, there literally is no such thing as clean energy without the materials that underlie it. So you either let the world heat up because you don't want to get access to the copper and lithium and nickel and everything that you need, uh, and that's a total disaster for everywhere in the world, or you live with the fact that there are some local environmental consequences of these mining operations. You engage with the companies once again. You focus on the long term. Are these companies operating in a better way now than they were 10 years ago? That's clear as day that that's the case. Are they moving in a direction where they're going to be much cleaner 10 years from now than they are today? That's pretty clearly the case. These companies are focused on minimizing their water impact. Uh, they're focused on uh, moving towards more electrified machinery and equipment. They're using less diesel uh, and, and they're using more kind of uh, solar power and, and other um, kind of renewable energy sources in, in many of these uh, companies' plans going forward. And some have already kind of made some pretty good progress along those lines. So for us, it's about being pragmatic and reasonable and, and kind of, unfortunately, there are trade-offs. There are always going to be trade-offs when you make uh, any of these decisions. And, and we just heavily favor 
um, making reasonable trade-offs and being pragmatic versus kind of sticking your head in the sand and pretending that this isn't happening. Uh, one is going to lead to a much better outcome than the other, and, and that's really what we're focused on. Um, you also mentioned kind of the advancements in technologies we've been seeing, and in terms of electric vehicles, Tesla has obviously been a stock that's taken off a lot this year. Is that something that you are also invested in, or do you stay away from that? Uh, we Tesla, Neo, Nikola, you know, BYD in China. These are all companies that uh, alternative fuel or, or electric vehicle companies that that we would consider for our strategy. We have a value orientation in our strategy. We're trying to find companies that have good growth prospects but are trading at reasonable or even cheap valuation levels. Uh, and and Tesla doesn't check that box. BYD doesn't check that box. These are incredibly expensive companies that imply a dominance of the automobile market that we've really never seen uh, before, which doesn't mean that they won't justify it. You look at companies like Amazon that have just, you know, they've been very expensive for a very long period of time and have justified those expensive valuations. But for every company like Amazon that's justified it, there are lots of companies that were overhyped, overvalued, and didn't justify it. So Tesla could be a huge piece uh, of the automobile market going forward and still be incredibly expensive uh, and, and generate really poor returns going forward for shareholders. It's really hard to know, but it's a very speculative investment at this point. Uh, and, and if you think uh, Tesla's done well, go look at NEO. Uh, NEO's up uh, you know, way more than Tesla is this year. Uh, so there, there's a lot of hype and excitement about electric vehicles. I think there will almost guaranteed be a lot of growth in electric vehicles uh, but that growth isn't just going to be the pure play electric vehicle manufacturers. You have Mercedes, Volvo, Volkswagen, uh, Ford, even Ford and GM. And when Ford and GM are on board, you know that everybody's coming out with their electric vehicle lines in the next year or two. Uh, and, and so Tesla's going to there's going to be a lot more competition uh, in the electric. It's going to be a very, very competitive space. Uh, and that's when you have a, a lot of competition that drives down margins, drives down profitability. Uh, and, and so, you know, yes, they're within our opportunity set, but we can't get comfortable with them from an investment perspective. As well as Tesla, there are some other renewable stocks that are starting to look quite expensive. I actually wanted to get your take on whether you think value can still be found in this area. But I guess but your, your investment strategy is kind of evidence of that itself. You said you look for value. We, we look for value. It's true that solar companies are up 100, 150% this year, wind companies up 50%, biofuels up 50%. So, you know, those are ball broad numbers, you know, but, you know, obviously some more, some less, but these companies have done very well this year in a tough market. Uh, and what's happened to, for a lot of these companies is they were super, super cheap. I mean, if you go back a couple of years ago, you were finding companies like Vestas Wind Systems, which is the world's biggest and, in our opinion, the best wind turbine manufacturer uh, out there. They have, they're always big market share winners. They have very little debt. Uh, they have strong growth prospects. Uh, they have very strong balance sheets. So they, they, they have a long proven history of generating cash flow and profitability for their investors. So everything looks good. And yet you were able to buy them at 13 times earnings or less than 13 times earnings in a market that was at 20, 21 times earnings. So um, these companies were really way cheaper than they should have been. They were kind of neglected. It sounds weird because now they aren't neglected. Uh, but it wasn't very long ago, once again, a year or two ago, where a lot of these solar and wind companies we're neglected. We still see biofuel opportunities that, quite frankly, uh, imply a, a significant amount of neglect. Uh, they were really neglected, and now there's there's significant attention on them. Uh, for most of the companies that we look at in the renewable space, we don't see them as being expensive. We just don't see them as being screamingly cheap anymore. So now they look more like fair value, um, and and actually fair value is pretty good uh, for, for right now because the equity markets are pretty expensive. We don't think you're going to get fair value uh, out of the broad equity market, generally speaking, certainly in the United States. Um, so uh, fair value is pretty good. Uh, implies, you know, real returns of six, seven, eight percent real going forward, which is better than we think you're going to get uh, otherwise. Um, another area that's seen an explosion of interest this year is uh, hydrogen. I was wondering whether I could get your take on what promise you see in that area. Are you also invested in anything to do with hydrogen? Uh, hydrogen's kind of, uh, it's amazing how much attention it's been getting. I agree. Uh, it, 
it went from not being mentioned at all a year ago or, or hardly mentioned at all a year ago to it's just the sell side. Uh, I don't think a day or two goes by without me getting some new kind of primer on hydrogen or, or some information about a stock that's a play on hydrogen. It's it's pretty speculative at this point. I think hydrogen does have a role in the future. But once again, figuring out how to value those companies is very difficult because it's kind of not a very proven technology. And depending on the application for hydrogen that you're talking about, you're talking about you could be talking about 25 years into the future. Like we're, there, there, there's a lot of talk about hydrogen being used in steel making uh, to replace coking coal uh, as an alternative form of steel making. Steel making has been one of the the tough spots uh, for for the world. We have kind of solutions for electricity. We have some solutions uh, for for vehicles uh, and transportation. And then you get to steel making. You get to aviation. These have been difficult areas to figure out where where the world can go. Uh, hydrogen's a possible solution, but once again, that could be 20, 25 years into the future. Um, and then you have companies like Nikola, where you know they're they're looking at hydrogen fuel cell, via, you know, long haul trucking solutions. And they've some at one point they were I don't know a forty billion dollar company earlier in the year, uh, and yet they don't even have a truck. They don't even have a prototype for a truck. They have an idea for a prototype for a truck. So. Once again, these things, I think hydrogen does have a role to play. It's probably a pretty significant role. It's just hard to find uh, an investment that isn't highly speculative. And, and we're really kind of geared more towards investing rather than speculating. Uh, some people will get it right. They'll get lucky on their speculation. Uh, but, but it's just not a game we're comfortable playing. Turning to the political environment in the US, the last four years haven't been particularly friendly towards the renewable space. And we're likely to see the tide turn um, from January onwards. Does that influence your strategy at all? Or are you more sort of about the long term? We, what, what, what becomes difficult about public policy is even if you think it's going to change, if you don't have the details on what that change is going to be, it's very difficult to model. So, you know, we're, we're, we're building economic models for these companies. Uh, is, is a Biden administration good news? Yes, that's good news for clean energy efforts. Uh, is a, a Democratic Congress good news for green energy efforts? Of course, they would. Be, it would be. Is a Republican Senate uh, less good news? Yes, it's less good news. But it's really hard to model those things. Uh, and, and it's hard to know exactly, you know, political outcomes are notoriously difficult to predict. Uh, and even with the, the Trump administration, there were times where the Trump administration would do something that was negative for biofuels, which so there are these things called small refiner exemptions. Uh, and the Trump administration, these are normally very difficult to hand out. Basically, um, what, what the refiners have been told is you have to blend in a certain amount of biodiesel into your diesel uh, production. And the small refiners get these exemptions because they're saying, we don't have the money to put the CapEx in. To, it would drive us out of business if you forced us to do this, because we just don't have the systems in place to do it. Uh, and, and so we need an exemption. And typically, very few of those exemptions are handed out. And then the Trump administration handed out a lot of them. Uh, but then that got a lot of pushback from his base, the farmer base, you know, because the farmers are producing soybeans and uh, corn and other things that are inputs into various biofuels. And then now all of a sudden Trump's base is mad at him because the farmers are saying, hey, where did the demand for our product go? Because you gave all these these ref small refiners exemptions. They don't need biofuels anymore. So then the Trump administration had to do, you know, they backtracked. They've been get rid of the exemptions, but they increased the obligations that, that companies had for refining. And so it, it was kind of like whack-a-mole. You know, you whack one thing down, something else pops up, you whack that down, something else pops up. Uh, but even the Trump administration wasn't able to be as negative as they wanted to be uh, on, on some of these clean energy efforts. So uh, yes, we pay attention to the public policy support implications. I mean, it's not just about the U.S. federal government. Jeremy mentioned earlier California is as green and forward-looking a, a, a place, forget about the fact that it's a state, just an area of the world as there is in the world. You know, like it's, it's kind of super 
progressive, super far out there. And if it were its own country, its own economy, it would be something like the sixth or seventh biggest economy in the world. Uh, China just announced that they're going to be uh, going, uh, trying to decarbonize by 2060, which is a huge deal and far beyond any commitment that they've made publicly in the past. Europe is working on the European New Green Deal. Uh, other states like New York and, and whatever, which are have huge economies, are progressive. So it's not just about the U.S. federal government. There's kind of a broader upswelling of support uh, from, from kind of uh, uh, an urgency perspective that we need to, to kind of uh, fight climate change or be more progressive on clean energy efforts. And, and I would be really shocked if you looked back five years from now and didn't see more public policy support broadly. There are going to be individual states or, you know, federal governments around the world where maybe there's been some backtracking. Uh, but as a, a broader effort, I think it's pretty clear the direction that the world is going and, frankly, that the world has to go. Uh, and, and with all the extreme weather events that are starting to impact people's daily lives, it's going to be less and less politically onerous to get uh, progress would be my, my suspicion. I guess my final question is for both of you to round off. As we move towards 2021, how hopeful should we be in terms of action on the climate change front, or should we not really be getting too comfortable with how everything's going? I would uh, like to make the point that this is not a, a, a U.S. issue. The thing about carbon dioxide is it's totally fungible. So we uh, we move along with the, the global average. And uh, I, I think we should be very uh, encouraged by the activities of the last year in terms of activity at the street level and, and all the way up to the political level. You asked me earlier, what, what do we need? And I, I made a, an omission so large that they'll take away my union membership card of the Green if I don't address it. And that is we need, of course, a tax on carbon uh, in the U.S. We need it everywhere. And increasingly, it comes in everywhere. Uh, the Chinese next year will start trading uh, carbon credits, and uh, which is a nice capitalist way, ironically, of doing it. And California, of course, has one, and, and even to a, a modest degree, uh, the states of the northeast of the U.S. But the EU is sharpening its pencil on, on carbon taxes. That will take years off our uh, break-even uh, date, when we finally make it to, to zero carbon. But this was also the year when one realized that getting to zero is not enough. We will have to reverse um, the carbon count. You know, the difference between normal and an ice age is only 100, 120 parts per million from 180 to, uh, or 160 to 280. And we have taken the 280 of a, of a very pleasant world to 415. We've added more than the difference between an ice age and an interglacial. And we will go to 550, and please, not much beyond that, but it, it may be beyond that. And we have got to take that 550 or that 650 and move it back to 280. And that is going to take a lot of resources, a lot of ingenuity, and possibly 100 years. It will be one of the great background demands of, of capitalism but we we and we will do it but it will take a long time and, and finally perhaps I, I wanted to make a word uh, just a quick word on on fusion uh, if you're looking out um, a few decades I, I think the second generation fusion of which there are perhaps a couple of dozen promising uh, startups working on new technologies that were not available uh, to the giant giant ITA multi-billion dollar cooperative deals. So these new technologies, I think are 50-50, one of them, uh, sooner or later, uh, will have a breakthrough and we will end up uh, with a backstop, plenty of green energy. We may get there anywhere, anyway, with storage, wind and solar and so on. But if we, uh, if we don't solve the storage problem, uh, we at least have a pretty decent chance of having fusion kick in before this game is fully played out. I would echo kind of what Jeremy just said about a carbon price and how impactful that would be, you know, when you when you think about what the world could or should do to fight climate change. It aligns, if you put a carbon price uh, on things, which of course people who are then 
sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere get paid to do that. And people who are uh, emitting a lot uh, have to pay for that. It aligns all the economic incentives in a very natural way and can kind of it's kind of a capital market solution uh, that's that's fairly kind of reasonable and elegant. When you call it a carbon tax, the problem is people hate taxes and they think of a tax as something that goes to the government and then gets wasted or whatever. Um, if you think of it as kind of a carbon price where you can benefit from it, if you're uh, more energy efficient than your neighbor or this co company A is more energy efficient than company B, you're actually benefiting from that. Uh, that's that's kind of a pretty powerful concept uh, and, and could have a huge impact on the world. It seems kind of like a necessity if we want to to really head this thing off and, and kind of have a major impact uh, on, on things, you know, without, you know, uh, I don't know, doing things that don't make economic sense. We, we have to fight the propaganda from the vested interests. Uh, carbon taxes, uh, whether they're a direct tax or a cap and trade, uh, are not nearly as onerous as, as we are led to believe by, by the fossil fuel industry. Take, for example, uh, Britain, and, and, and most of Europe has a tax on uh, petrol or gasoline, uh, which is well over $300 a ton. This is a world where we're told that $10 a ton will send us into the Second Great Depression. Well, $300 a ton, as any Londoner can tell you, has not, have, has not stop, stopped some of the worst traffic jams in the world. So the, the economy still functions and the cars still drive. How do you think we can sort of fight back against that propaganda then? Whose responsibility is it? It's Jeremy's. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I am proud to say that the Grantham Foundation spends... Uh, in, in its grant making, over 50% of our grant uh, goes to communications, which is the polite word for uh, propaganda. And, and we're trying to communicate the, the real science and the real economics uh, to uh, the general public, to politicians, for policy-making purposes. And, and, and it's a, a sadly, sadly neglected area, uh, communications, green communications but we do as much as we can afford. Well, I'd like to thank you both very much for taking the time to speak to me. This has been very useful and very interesting. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.